Good morning. Invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be spending our time this morning um, looking at the account we have been studying through the book of Genesis. Uh, we started at the beginning of the summer. We're working our way through this uh, book of beginnings, as we refer to it. And in the last couple of weeks, we've looked particularly at God bringing judgment on the earth because of the corruption of man through the floodwaters. Uh, and through the account, we have seen that, that God, in his righteous judgment, must bring uh, this judgment on the earth. But he has a, this preservation that we see in Noah and his family and in the ark. And we've seen uh, in the last couple chapters, chapter 6 and 7, the prevailing of God's judgment. And this morning, our focus is going to be looking on this restoration that God brings uh, through Noah and his family. We're actually going to uh, look at a pretty large section. We're going to go from uh, chapter 8, verse 1, all the way uh, chapter 9, verse 17. Uh, and just to digest that easily, we're going we're to look at that in kind of two halves uh, as we read through. So uh, we're going to read now God's word starting in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 19 of chapter 8. Read with me the holy and authoritative word of God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days. And he sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. 
Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift to us in your word. This, this word given to us to reveal who you are, to help us see uh, how you work and the desires of your heart and your plans for the creation you have made. In it, we get a glimpse and an understanding of your character, of your nature, and of your heart. And may we this morning receive your word with open ears, with soft hearts. May your spirit move in such a way that your word becomes to us fresh light and life and that it may have a transforming effect on our hearts and in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have seen over the last few weeks that God is utterly committed to upholding his holiness. That God has created all things and that his nature as a perfect being wants what he has created to, to come under fulfillment of who he is and, and through the corruption of sin, the sin in the garden that perpetuated through humanity, corruption rose to such a level that the holiness of God required judgment to be poured out on the earth. And that judgment came in the fierceness, the seriousness of the floodwaters. God is committed to his judgment of the rebellion of sin. Our text this morning that, that we are brought to examine, it wants to also demonstrate for us another commitment of God. Another unrelenting reality of God's nature. That he is holy and must judge sin, but in that God is also full of mercy and grace. And he is committed to his plan of redemption. This text before us, this main point for us this morning, is that God is committed to redeeming grace. That's what we see through these Verses that God has a plan that He is going to continue to carry out. He has made wonderful promises in the first three chapters of our Bibles. Promises that, that sin will not prevail and judgment will come, and that He will send forth this plan to redeem a people to Himself, to be a people of His. Grace, receiving his mercy and his kindness. And we see this being fulfilled through Noah and his family and their preservation through the judgment. In this first section, these first 19 verses, I want to just draw our attention. There's a lot here that we're going to cover, a lot that we're not going to be able to, to pull out all the details. So I just want to look at two things that we see uh, in these first 19 verses. 
First, we see God remembering. 8.1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Right in the middle, and we have this illustration up there for you. One of the beautiful things that we can often miss in Scripture is, is the literary devices that are meant to draw attention to important details in the text. And here in the account of the flood from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9, we have a structure that is built into the text. And this structure, I just pulled out uh, a simplified version of it. It's, it's much bigger and in much more detail, but I want to see, show you how it works. There are parallels that are written in the text of our Bibles. And these parallels work at different ends of the account. So you see uh, in chapter 7, verse 4, it details seven days of waiting. And then later on in chapter 8, verse 12, which we just read, another seven days. And there are parallels throughout. And the, the purpose of this literary device is to get us to work and see the detail at the pinnacle. So you see those seven days, seven days, 40 days, 150 days, and at the middle of the full account of this flood narrative, from the beginning to the end of it, the center point of it all is God remembering Noah. In chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers his servant, the one who walked with God. We are told that the Lord remembered Noah. Now, it's important for us to understand that this remembering is not the same as like us remembering where we left our keys. <laughs> it's not the same kind of remembering of someone's birthday with without Facebook, we would all be lost. When the Bible talks about God remembering, he didn't he wasn't distracted somewhere else in the universe and was like, oh yeah, Noah, he's chilling on that boat. I better go take care of that. <laughs> when the Bible talks about God's remembering, it talks about him uh, calling to attention his loving promises and moving toward them in action. Derek Kidner has this quote. I think it'll be up on the screen for us. To say God remembered... It combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. God's remembering implies his movement toward the object of his memory. To say in verse 1 that God remembered Noah, it says, Now God will move in, in an action towards the one whom he remembers. Back in chapter 6, God, when he was giving Noah the instructions to build the ark, he said that he will make a covenant with him, that he will promise to care for him, that he will preserve him. This remembering is speaking of the caring knowledge and leading action of God towards the one whom he remembers. God has intimate, caring knowledge of Noah and his family and the creatures in the ark. This is a preserving 
thought. And this remembering is quickly followed by a redeeming action. Look what happens when God remembers Noah, the second part of verse 1. And God made wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God's caring, loving knowledge of Noah in remembering him brings him to move in action. And that action happens as he makes a wind blow over the earth and the waters begin to subside. This is the beginning of God restoring what was destroyed. God is moving in the action of his remembering. And Noah is relying on the promises of God to be fulfilled. See, God begins a work here of recreation. Throughout this chapter and through chapter 9, we will hear echoes of Genesis 1. Where God, in the original creation, brought things into existence, separated the waters from the land, brought dry ground and vegetation and animals and the life of human beings, called them precious. Throughout this text, God is recreating what he has made, reestablishing what has taken place. And we see this right away in this verse when it says that God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. That word wind in the original language is the same word used for spirit. If we flipped back to chapter 1 verse 2 where it tells us that the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters to bring order out of chaos. Again, God's moving to restore creation order out of the chaos that was brought through judgment. What we see here and what we must observe and apply in our own hearts and minds is that that God is a God of remembering his promises and acting on them. Those Bibles in your lap are filled with promises of God to his people. And it is good for our souls to know he remembers them. He is not forgetting those promises, but in his time he is moving in action towards those promises. The second part I want us to see out of this section is that phrase, in his timing. God remembers moves in loving action towards his promises for his people in his timing. Not sure if you picked up on this as we read through these first 19 verses, but Noah did a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. And the text decides to detail some of that waiting as we have seen. And it even explicitly mentions it in verse 10 that he waited and it adds the word another seven days. And then in verse 12, he waited and it says another seven days. Noah waited and waited and waited. After the rains had stopped, Noah waited. 
trusting in God's promises, waiting for his full deliverance. And if we compare uh, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8 back to verses 11 and 13 in chapter 7, we see that from the time Noah and his family enter the ark to the time that he is allowed to step through that doorway again, a full year has gone by. A full year of experiencing, hearing, as Kyle pointed out for us last week, the judgment of God on the corrupt earth and God's preserving. And Noah could only wait inside in the ark, holding only in his hand the promise of God for his preservation. John Calvin asks this question, why does Noah not budge from the ark? Why doesn't he just try and get out at some point? Because he is waiting for God to give him permission. God had closed the ark behind him. And Noah had enjoyed the blessing of having God as the protector of his life. He does not wish to take a single step or make any move until God says to him, go out. The experience of Noah and the promise of God is what he holds on to and he will not go until God tells him he can go out. And so he waits and what can we learn from this waiting of Noah? Well, we see that Noah can wait by trusting in the promise and provision of God's salvation. What do we know about Noah in his life? We know that Noah was to be found a righteous man and then called to an act of obedience in building the ark that, that seems utterly ridiculous to the world around him, right? But we're told at the end of chapter 6 that he did all that the Lord commanded. That he was faithful. That he trusted God's promises and acted out on those promises. Listen, there are times in our lives where God calls us into active obedience, right? And we see very clearly the steps before us of what we must do to trust the Lord. They're not always easy, but they're pretty clear. You know what one of the most difficult things to do in obeying God is just waiting. Noah had approximately 50 to 70 years of actively swinging a hammer to build this boat. And then a whole year of just sitting and waiting. But yet, trusting in the promise and provision of God to sustain and provide for his family. Some of us, some of us this morning find ourselves in a season of waiting where God is just calling us to wait on him, just to trust in him, to, to remember his promises and let that be enough to sustain us through a season. And we can wait as Noah did until the Lord would tell us to go out. God puts us in places of waiting to learn dependence and trust. And this can be difficult. It can be difficult. But we must remember the promises of God and know that he does not forget. 
and that will sustain us through these seasons. So we see in this first section, the remembering of the Lord and the waiting of Noah. Now let's read the second half of our text this morning. And as I read, I'll give you the two points so you can look for them. In this section, we're going to see the offering of Noah and the covenant of God. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 20. Get some water for this section. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground until all flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it from man, and from man, for from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast on the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, I want you to consider this reality. 
God brings total judgment over the face of the earth, destroying all flesh, preserving just one family through that flood. And then many days Noah waits as the waters slowly subside from the face of the earth, revealing more and more of the dry land. And God eventually opens the door and tells Noah to go out. What is the first act that Noah decides is the most important thing to do as his foot hits dry ground for the first time in a year to reestablish the created order? It's a sacrifice to the Lord. The first thing he does, he doesn't build a shelter. He doesn't start his own fire for warmth. He doesn't go looking to farm. He doesn't plan for the provisions of the next day. He offers to the Lord a sacrifice. He builds an altar. It tells us of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offers a burnt offering to the Lord. This is incredibly instructive for us. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, he wants to highlight how important this text is. He says, in marking the transition from the flood to the new world, from God's wrath to God's grace, these verses hold enormous importance to the Bible's story. If, if one were to tell the history of redemption in a series of paintings, this scene of worship in the post-flood world would be worthy of inclusion. This is critical that we see what is going on here. Why is this first act so vitally important for Noah to perform and for us to observe? Because in response to God's judgment and his preserving grace, Noah must offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a sacrifice of atonement, a payment for sins. Which begs the question, if God had just brought a cleansing judgment for sin on the earth, why does Noah feel it's so necessary to provide a sacrificial offering in atonement for sins? Well, it tells us, and it makes it explicit again, where God promises in verse 21, he will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is not referring, again, just to the world before the flood, but what will perpetuate from this moment forward. See, Noah is this picture of another Adam, starting again in a new creation, being a first man who will live out on creation the, the promises and the call of God. But there is one critical difference that we must see that is different from Noah and from Adam. Noah is not a sinless man. Noah is very aware of the sin in his own heart. And I'm sure his family is probably aware too. If you were locked in a boat for a year with your family, you might be well aware of everyone's flaws. <laughs> Noah immediately realized his need. Seeing and hearing 
the awesome judgment of God against sin, Noah is fully aware that he needs atonement. How, how can I go on in this new world with a God who is so beauteous in his holiness that he must bring judgment against sin? I cannot sustain it in myself. Noah knows he cannot go one day, no, not one minute, trying to work in his own righteousness when the holy God presides over his universe. The flood brought judgment against sin, a purging judgment, but not a completing judgment. The flood did not eradicate sin completely from the earth. And so Noah performs this offering of atonement to the Lord, and we are told that the Lord smells it and it is a pleasing aroma before the Lord. And God knew that this would be necessary. God provided the animals that Noah would sacrifice. If you looked back into chapter 7, verse 2, we are told that Noah brought pairs of every animal. And we've learned from our children's story that all the animals came on two by two, right? But in chapter 7, verse 2, it tells us that there were a particular group of animals where not just one pair of the animals were to be brought, but seven pairs of all clean animals. Why? Because God knew that Noah would need provision for atonement in the new world. And so he tells him, take seven pairs of clean animals so that you are ready to provide an atoning sacrifice for my promised deliverance of provision for you and your family. So Noah offers this sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to God. Sin will continue in this new recreated world. It is a fresh start, but not a fresh start without sin. And so Noah knows that offering must go on. And it tells us and points forward this pleasing aroma before the Lord of this atoning sacrifice. It cries forward through the years of another sacrifice that would provide the ultimate atonement for God's people, for their provision, for their sin. And so in response to Noah and his offering, God says that he will establish a covenant. Noah provides the offering before the Lord and God establishes his covenant with Noah. He is reestablishing his purpose for creation. Here's what we must get, and this is critical to see. God is reestablishing his creation because he needs an arena for his redemption to take place. God is committed to redeeming grace, and so this restoring and reordering and recreating is providing the arena for that redeeming grace to take place. God is committed to redeeming 
grace. God ultimately dries out the land for his purposes. He dries out the land so that he can have a people. He dries out the land so that there can be promises made. He dries out the land ultimately so that there can be a manger, a temple, a city, a mountain, a donkey, bread and wine, and a hill called Golgotha. The mountains are exposed and the waters recede so that there is a place for salvation to happen for God's people. And so there's this covenant that God makes with Noah and his family that he will never again bring the flood waters to destroy the earth. And in this covenant, God promises protection for Noah and his family. We see this in the beginning of chapter 9, that he will protect Noah from all the beasts of the earth. He tells him that the beasts of the earth will be afraid of you, and there will be dread upon them. The animal kingdom will flee before mankind. Aren't we thankful that we aren't attacked by every squirrel in our backyard? They run away. And God provides provision that man will be preserved even from the hands of other men, right? God says that if man's blood is shed by another man, there shall be a reckoning for it. And again, God reestablishes another echo from chapter 1 that God is made in the image of man. And again, another echo from chapter 1 that man shall be fruitful and multiply, go forth and fill the earth. God is starting afresh in this new world and his plan has not changed. He will redeem a people to himself. And when God makes a covenant, he gives a sign of that covenant promise. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign that I, of the covenant that I make with me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is this this promise, this agreement, this, this commitment to undertake this obligation. God is saying that he is committing to never destroy again the face of the earth and all flesh through the waters of the flood. And with that agreement, he gives a symbol of the promise in the rainbow. And God does this with all of his covenants. As we continue to read our Bibles, we see more and more covenants of God and more and more symbols. With Abraham, he makes a covenant and gives the symbol of circumcision. With Moses, he makes a covenant and gives the symbol of the Sabbath rest. We have the new covenant and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. God attaches a sign to his covenant so that there would be remembering of his promise. And look at how interesting this is. Again, it is not just for his people to remember the promise that is made, but for God to remember. Look at verse 15. I, says the Lord, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood and destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, look at what it says. I will see it and remember. 
when God looks and sees his rainbow in the clouds, he says that he will remember. And we've already learned that that remembering is not God, right, needing to set a reminder on his iPhone like I need to do. It's God declaring that he will move towards the object of his remembering, his creation and his people. And how will he move when he sees his bow in the cloud, when God sees and remembers? Even though sinful rebellion abounds, God will show restraint and mercy. Covenant symbol of the rainbow is a sign of God's patient forbearance. Ongoing rebellion abounds on the earth, and the rainbow declares that God is patiently forbearing. He is moving toward the object of his remembrance in mercy and in grace. But listen, we cannot misread our Bibles here. Yes, it is clear that God will never again bring judgment in the way of the flood. But it does not mean that God will not bring a full and final judgment to preserve and uphold his holiness. In 2 Peter, the apostle captures it for us this way. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he says, And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The rainbow is a declaration of God's patient forbearance and his promise to never again flood the earth. But it is also a symbol for us that God is patiently forbearing until a day. The rainbow For God's covenant people, those who have been saved by grace, trusting in Jesus, is is a symbol of God's loving, patient forbearance. And for those who are not in the covenant promises of God, who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the rainbow is a symbol of warning. God, yes, now, today, patiently forbears, but there is a day coming. And so we must not see this symbol of his patience and presume upon it. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
There is no maybe in that statement. God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The rainbow declares the patient forbearance of God and warns the unrepentant to flee to that mercy and grace. It is a call to repentance. This morning, if you have come in these doors, and maybe, maybe you're newer, or maybe you've been here for quite some time, but you have yet to throw yourself fully on the mercy of God. Maybe you have relied on being pretty good, coming to church enough, comparing yourself to those around you, claiming that you're a Christian. Maybe you know well your Bible but you have yet to throw yourself on the mercy of God, completely trusting in the salvation provided by God himself through his son, then this message, this text this morning to you is a call for you to see the forbearing patience of God and not presume upon it, but to throw yourself under it. You see, friends, in between the floodwaters of judgment and the fires of the final days stands the pinnacle act of God's remembering. The sacrificial offering with which the Lord was most pleased. The, the greatest display of God's covenant Love, where another flood was poured out on the world, a flood of grace in the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for re rebels, those who have turned away from God's good and righteous commands for their lives. A flood of grace in the blood of Jesus Christ has come for the salvation of sinners. That's what this text is crying forward to. And that's what we read this morning and look backward at. We see the pinnacle of God's remembering and covenant commitment to save sinners to himself. The full commitment of God's redeeming grace is made known as he sacrificed his own son, poured out his judgment upon him, and was absorbed by Jesus himself, removing that punishment that is so deserved by sinners, if you will trust in him. May God, may God move this morning. May he make his wind, his spirit blow on our hearts to see this marvelous mercy on that hill where Jesus died, remembering and seeing that God is committed to rescuing a people for himself. And may we live, may we live lives of offering to him for the work that he has done. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous promises of your word, for the truths that are brought through this text, 
We thank you that you are a God who remembers, that you move in loving, redeeming action towards those who are under your promises. May we be a people that respond and live in the good of that, living lives of offering unto you. And for those this morning who are not a part of the covenant love that you have bestowed on those saved by Jesus, may your spirit open their hearts, let them see, and may, we, may they move in repentance, turning from their sin and trusting in you. We thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.